Well, as we near the end of Ordinary Time, it means we're nearing the end of this series we've been doing called Spiritual Formation Over a Lifetime. In these last number of weeks, we've been looking at the life of David and reading together Eugene Peterson's book, Leap Over a Wall. And this week, as Eugene leads us in thinking about this passage in a way that means we think about David as a theologian. I think from, a, from just a literary point of view, Samuel 22 is David's kind of farewell expression, his reflections on his experience with God. And in that sense, it's a peek into his real heart and mind. And perhaps the big formational takeaway for us this morning is this notion, that the most important life-shaping thoughts we will ever have are those which we have about God. And in that sense, we're all, you know, kind of, you know, theologians. Uh, now, I, you know, I love theologians. I don't count myself one. You, you guys probably think of me as, you know, sort of, you know, theological or something, but I've, like, known real theologians. And, um, you know, like Dennis Ockholm, our own Dennis, he's like a real theologian. My canon theologian in Chicago, Scott McKnight. You know, Scott's a real-life theologian or, you know, and every generation has its sort of famous theologians. You know, we have Tom, Tom Wright right now or whatever, right? And so we tend to think of theologians in those categories, appropriately so. But if, if we just mean theology is one's thoughts about God. So some are more careful than others. Some are more considered. Some people have spent their whole life, you know, studying nitty-gritty little parts of theology. And so their thoughts are different than others. And in that sense, we call them theologians. But in another sense, we all have thoughts about God. And you name him, and your naming of him, like an iron hand, determines your relationship with him, right? Once he's named, is not sure if he's trustworthy. That, that, that will then guide, guide your relationship with him. And so what Eugene tries to show us is that the single most important thing about David is his relationship to God, that he believed in God, thought about God, imagined God, addressed God, prayed to God, that David was just immersed in God. And, and this, is, this is Eugene saying, this is why we think about him as a theologian. That for David, every visibility revealed for him an invisibility. Like there was a reason for that bear, a reason behind that lion, a reason behind Goliath, even a reason behind Bathsheba or Uriah or not going to war. David just kind of knew that as I look further and further and further, like past and beyond whatever's visible to me, I always come to this invisibility. And so David experienced the reality that everything heard, tasted, touched, and experienced, if you follow it far enough and deep enough, it brings you to the presence of God. And being able to notice that is what makes David a theologian. He noticed God, and he named God's activity in his life. And in naming God, he then had a lived experience of revelation, knowing that God was personal and present and that as God was personal and present, David just kind of knew in the deepest parts of his being that that required a response. And this is what we see all throughout the Psalms. I pray to you, I sing to you, I live in you, I run for dear life to you, I cry to help for you. So what we see in David is he married sort of truth about God to love for God. And we've kind of held this intention now all these many weeks. And I wonder if this begins to explain to us how David is a man after God's own heart. 
I'm quite sure that if Uriah's family's still alive somewhere, they may be questioning that. And some of Bathsheba's families, if, if they were alive today and, and knowing what we now are living through with men abusing their position and power to have a woman, I wonder if Bathsheba's lineage would think, oh yeah, yeah, David's a man after God's own heart. So in what way is he a man after God's own heart? And I think what we have to see here is that this doesn't mean there's a moral or spiritual balance between David and God. No, the relationship between David and God is totally lopsided on the side of God. The unknown David, remember when we started this story months ago? The unknown David, the one who no one thought would be chosen, is named and known. The unequipped David is made triumphant. The undefended David finds refuge. The undeserving David is forgiven. The unworthy David recovers his kingship. The David story is a gospel story. It's a revelation into how God deals with his people. And so from the David story, we learn that we don't become followers of Jesus in a vacuum. We become followers of Jesus in your real life as you presently know it. Not for a hoped for life that will come that you suppose will be better. You know what I mean? Like, well, when I'm out of debt or when school's over, or right? You know how we do that? We wish life away. But David found God in real life, in the real social, political, cultural context in which he lived. And so then through this reality, the reason this is so important is that we learn two things. No condition can stop the work of the Spirit. Now, whether that's like, you know, 1940s Nazism, you know, think of something really big, or think of your condition right now this morning. Maybe you're hearing rumors that you might get laid off. Or maybe you just experienced the death of a loved one. Maybe you're insecure in a marriage. But just think of the real components of your life, the real conditions in which you're trying to walk with Jesus and walk in the Spirit. And the story of David, if it doesn't tell us anything else, says that, man, there's obviously no condition that can stop the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit never works apart from our real conditions that it was the Spirit precisely working with David in all the ups and downs of his life, and that God can use any condition at hand in the making of his kingdom. So, I mean, this is not a history class. We don't have time to talk about the Iron Age. But the age in which David lived was an age, all the historians will say, was marked by two things, violence and sex. Now, you know, the cynical person wants to say, and, right, like... Like, was there an age that wasn't? But, but, the, Iron, but the, the Iron Age is like particularly known as this moment in human history marked by violence and sex. And David, of course, was not exempt from their influence. But he wasn't confined by it either. Can you feel that? Yeah, influenced by it. It was, it was the space and place in which he was working out his theology of God. It influenced him. But because of the work of the Spirit in his life, it couldn't ultimately confine him. And so it's really important that we notice this because we, of course, too live in times that are not favorable to faith and increasingly so. And that violence and sex and wars and promiscuity are all around us too. And this, this is always the case, that these kinds of things and other challenges have always marked the human condition, the human condition in which God empowers people to live holy lives. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed if, if we went over to South Coast Plaza or down to the beach or something. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who thinks life's just great right now. Like, you know, the world seems good. Yeah, we're pretty good. Right? I mean, it's hard to think of anything where the world seems pretty good. Healthcare, global economy, fair taxation, 
Relationships between men and women, care for the elderly, what to do in public schools. I mean, it's be hard to name something where everybody just went, yeah, everything feels pretty good. It doesn't feel pretty good. But go back to what I said. There is no condition in which the spirit cannot work. And the spirit never works outside of real conditions. That's kind of a duh, right? If you think about it, well, of course. How else could the spirit work except for what's real in spaces and places of humankind? And so David's bad behaviors, you know, those things that make him look anything but like a man after God's own heart, they're not told in the scriptures to legitimize that bad behavior. They're told as an example that we don't first become good and then get God, right? We get God, and then through a long, patient lifetime, we're trained in God's ways, becoming persons after his own heart, right? David wasn't nobody, but was named, learned something about God. David, as a shepherd, found favor in protecting the sheep when he could handle a bear or a lion. And so see, the arc of this story is, you know, that then, of course, by the time Goliath gets there, David's already on this trajectory of becoming a theologian. So when he's named by God, maybe he names God the namer, better, the namer of me. Now, we could just stop right there. Who names you? Remember, my mother used to say of me, you're a worrywart. That was like a 50s thing. I was, like, I was like, like a 50s thing. And I, to this day, I don't know what a worry wart is other than apparently I worried too much, right? My dad had names for me that I can't say in public. <laughs> right, so maybe you have an ex-spouse that named you in some sort of horrific way or a parent who named you or a coach who named you. See, David's first experience that makes him a theologian is that in being named, he then names his namer. Oh, you are the one who named me. And then as he just goes through these life's experiences, it's through those experiences, not his bad behaviors, but he just has this patient walking with God, being trained in God's ways over a whole lifetime. It was within David's real problems that he discovered with certainty that it was God who was his rock and a fortress. It was through precisely his challenges that he found a grounded, secure place to stand. Isn't that a bit counterintuitive, right? Like when, when we're having problems where we feel like we're not sort of secure on our feet, David discovered the opposite, that no, God's my rock and fortress, like I can hide in him. He's a shield and a strength and and David just has this knowledge that God's delivered him throughout his whole life. And I want you to notice here, just because I think this is important, not, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant or the temple, right? Not the signs of religion, right? Not the thing that signifies God, but God himself is what David rejoices in. And I don't mean to say the Ark was unimportant or the temple, obviously, they're enormously important. But they were signs and they signified a reality that David was personally experiencing. And so he doesn't say of himself or Saul or anybody else, well, the kings of Israel, they're our rock, they're our fortress, they ground us, they give us a secure place to stand, they're our shield and strength. No, it's not religion, and it's not the mix of political, personal, social power in which David found a groundedness, but precisely in God. David formed a relationship with God by making it 
his habitual spiritual practice to call upon the Lord, whether in his most profound moments that we see in his poetry in the Psalms or in moments when he's standing before Nathan and seeing what's real, he calls upon the Lord. In his sort of worst depravity, the highest heights of just having some great victory over the Philistines or something, in every moment of his life, he, he just called on the Lord. And that's what makes him a theologian. And this is what we're invited into in our own formation as we think of David as a way to help give us an imagination for our formation of a lifetime. There is a big part of this that is just simply noticing and naming that which is real. So spiritual directors and counselors and pastors and therapists and others try to help us name what's real about us internally or in our family systems or whatever might be happening with us. That sort of naming is really important, but it's incomplete without also naming God and trying to notice whether you think of this in sort of good old-fashioned Ignatian ways or any other way that you might get to this, but noticing and naming God and his activity in our life and then somehow getting those two things in conversation. This is what's real about me. This is what's real about God, and I call upon him. Now, keeping it real for a second, challenge with this is, is that you will only call upon someone you have come to respect and admire. You will only call upon someone you find trustworthy and who you assume has your good in mind. I mean, we can know this for a lot of ways, but you know one of the ways we know this? Angie's List, right? Or there's all kinds of them now, Home Advisor, you know, Trip Advisor, Yelp. Yelp's classic. Right, You only want to go to a restaurant that you suppose you can trust because the reviews on Yelp are good. And what, what is such a hindrance to so many people's formation in Christ is that they have kind of a notional value of calling upon God, but in their theological considerations of him aren't sure that he's actually trustworthy or that he's competent or capable, not sure he actually sees or loves me. If he sees and loves me, he sees all my crud, if he sees my crud, he must hate me because I know I hate my crud. My wife hated my crud or my parents hated my crud. And we just get stuck there. And that erodes trust. But for David, through the ups and downs of his life, he learned that the self-revealing, all-powerful creator of the universe was watching over him. And this is what undergirded David's personal relationship with God. It let him know that his enemies, including his internal enemies, were no match for God. Did you catch that? So picture however you want the brokenness of just that era of Bathsheba and Uriah and then Nathan. So that, I mean, that's just the easiest one. So however you might imagine the brokenness in David that will allow for that kind of thing, David comes to find out that even my most wickedness is no match for the goodness of God and what he is naming me. What he is naming me includes the, all the ups and downs of my life. Can you feel that? Like the naming is what's fundamental. The naming is what's transcendent. And the naming doesn't just mean David's a cool guy because he was a great king or made a great decision here. Nope, all the ups and downs of, of David's life all get named by God. And as, and as David begins to understand this, he realizes that this just releases me into such a spacious place that I'm just no longer bound by spiritual malformation. That's the internal part. 
I'm not hemmed in by my enemies. And so in this freedom, David called upon and kept the ways of the Lord. Now, I mean, I've been reading these texts since I was a teenager. And I, you know, I would, and you know, of course, as a teenage boy, the whole Bathsheba thing was, you know, got my attention, right? And, uh, you know, as a teenage boy, I'm trying to deal with it. And I would look at, and look at these things that were said about David, that he kept the ways of the Lord. And I would think, well, I know at least one time he didn't. He kept some other ways, but he didn't keep the way of the Lord. And I think this has always been a bit confusing, and I'll bet for many of you in the room, it's a bit confusing. So let me, let me just say this. When David says of himself, and when other writers say of him that he kept the ways of the Lord, this is not a claim of perfection. It's a statement of intent. And it requires of us to wonder, what do we intend? It's not a statement if he did it all right. It meant that he lived his life in a richly integrated, ongoing conversational relationship with God. In that sense, he kept the way of the Lord. A lot of scholars think, and we'll be done with this, that the language in 2 Samuel 18 or Psalm 18, sorry, 2 Samuel 22 or Psalm 18, is David having rehearsed the story of the Exodus, you know, how many times in his mind as a Jewish leader, was reading his experience into the Exodus story and like personalizing it in a good way and thinking that, man, I've been in bondage and slavery to sin. And he places himself in the story as one whom God has rescued. Now, this again is a place where I think Peterson is so helpful that God doesn't real, reveal reality, right? Like just think of the Exodus story. And it's told pretty carefully, right? With some detail. That God doesn't reveal that reality so that we can stand around and look at it as spectators, but that so we can enter it and become at home in it. And what's happening to David here is that he is placing himself into that story in which Yahweh is the rescuer. Yahweh brings deliverance from both my internal enemies, my malformation in my heart, soul, mind, will, my present system of desires. Yahweh goes there. And that's every bit as big as what Israel was experiencing in Babylon or Egypt. And David's learning that Yahweh goes there that Yahweh is sort of by definition deliverer, the one who brings salvation, which essentially means rescue. And so David's becoming at home in this, that God's not angry at me. I've done bad things, but God's always been with me and, and, and his fundamental nature is rescue, help, deliver, heal, make whole. That, that, that's who, fundamentally who he is. And then by living into it, David brings all that history into the present that he can live into. He's a theologian. He's thinking about God in a way that shapes his life. And so again, I just wanna say our actual life is the soil for Christian formation, just like David. The ups and downs of our life, that's the soil in which we do our formation. And that it occurs over a lifetime of constantly seeking God, right? Think, First Chronicles, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he might be found. Call upon him. Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God. Paul, seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. Paul again, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ.
So what David's living into and what I think he models for us in our formation over a lifetime is this knowledge that God has taken the initiative, he still does, but it's more like a butterfly than a bully. It's not for no reason that God is largely hidden. Being hidden suits his purposes, and I can't run that down this morning, but it's also for your good, that you're not just bulldozed by God. Like, made in his image, you're too valuable to just be bulldozed. Therefore, the way we experience this is, though God takes the initiative, it is more like a butterfly than a bully. And this just means we must seek him. But we seek him as theologians who have named him as the one who named me, the one who called me, the one who gave me purpose, the one who defends and protects me even to the end of my life and my last breath. In that moment, I'm not actually vulnerable. I'm named. And that, that's like theology on the run right there. That's theology over a lifetime that sees that we seek because we've been sought and that the one who seeks us will superintend our whole life. So I want to invite you now in our moment of quiet to get out your bulletin and look at the scripture that we read together, uh, antiphonally um, from 2 Samuel 22. And I want you to use the scriptures this morning, just kind of let your eyes just, you don't have to read it again, but just let your eyes flow over those words. And perhaps the spirit this morning will help you to find a word in, in that passage in which you can name and give thanks for your fondest thoughts about God. Find a word that helps like spark a fondness towards God in your heart. Take a moment and give thanks.